Thanks for tuning in to Movie Geeks United, everybody. Let's start the show with this week's deaths. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but it, it deserves... Yeah. Well, you know, last week I was surprised, Adam, when you brought up that Douglas Rain died, and now today mm-hmm. another Kubrick collaborator died, Pablo Ferro. Uh, oh, so, uh, oh, that's too that. bad. I missed that. Pe- yeah. People in the Kubrick hemisphere are going. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, Douglas Rain. That's. I was going to mention that. Uh, th- I didn't know you mentioned it last week. Cause yeah, of course, I was off, but uh, uh, that was that was sad, and and of course, uh, the greatest the greatest voiceover performance of all time, probably, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, he did the voice of the computer in in Sleeper too. That is. No. <laughs> I thought that was interesting, and then of course he reprised it in 2010, but uh, yeah. And then uh, Pablo Ferro, one of the great title designers, uh, mm-hmm. gave uh, gave Ku- uh, Kubrick's film such a unique uh, – from uh, Doctor Strange, Love, and Clockwork, uh, he says, I tried years ago. He, again, I tried years ago to get in touch with, and I never could. He was mm-hmm. in, uh, in Spain or uh, Mexico or something, and he – I can never get through to him, just like Douglas Rain. But uh, he did a he did a million more movies. But uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that uh, uh, Strange Love opening and that, that typeface has been imitated a lot. Uh, I think uh, I think it was him that did it for Stop Making Sense as well. Uh, the the credit sequence for that, and uh, mm. it's very much like the Strange Love opening, but. Um, you know, some of Pablo Ferro's best work connected to uh um uh, uh Strange Love is, is his uh his trailer that he cut for it which is mm. truly insane. Uh really really insane. Uh must have must have uh 2000 cuts in it or something. Mm-hmm. Uh in the space of a minute. Uh it's really nuts. Uh, I was I was sure. laughing because I was just thinking about the the opening credit sequence of Strange Love and the and the plane refueling and it looking like they're they're making love mm-hmm. up there in the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's just wacky. Yeah. wacky. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a movie he worked on that I think he did just his contributions are incalculable. Or uh, was Midnight Cowboy. Because he did all the graphic effects for Midnight Cowboy, and if you remember, oh yeah, all the TV stuff on there. Yes, there's a uh, lot going on there. That's some busy, busy work. Yeah, there's a lot of great TV stuff. You know what else he did? I believe he chose. Uh, I believe he chose all of the stuff on the TVs for being there. He did. Yes, mm. that's yes. correct. And that's that's really great work too. Really, really, uh, that's fun. Adds a lot of fun to that movie, mm-hmm. um, so he was he was a master for sure. Yeah. But of course, of course, we have William Goldman. Yeah, uh, I can see I can see somebody like reporting that doesn't know anything about William Goldman and and them saying a man famous for not knowing anything died today. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> like mixing up mixing up his most famous phrase. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's shocking to me is, well, I guess it's not very shocking. 
William Goldman said he only liked two things that he wrote, which was The Princess Bride, the, the novel. And then um, – oh, what's the other thing that he said that he liked? Uh, Butch Cassidy. Yeah, those are the only two things he said that he liked, that he wrote. And yet, you know, all the president's men – Mentally, yeah, I wonder what his problem with all the president's men is. Yeah, what would be your problem with that? <laughs> yeah, what's the? I think I think that's expertly worked out, and I, I can't imagine what his problem with it would be. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it's to me, it's clearly his greatest works are President's Men and Butch Cassidy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then uh, outside of that. Uh, I, if I was going to pick a third work, I would pick uh, I would pick Adventures of the Screen Trade, the great book yeah. about about mm-hmm. Hollywood they did in the uh, in the eighties. I guess uh, that's that's just uh, essential. If you've never read that, you must. Uh, it's still it's still it's also a, when, relevant. When you, when you look at like when you look at like essential film books, uh, that one's always in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. And and maybe maybe even his which lie did I tell? Mm, uh, and then you, then you have a Sidney Lumet so making movies. Yes, which has become such an essential book, especially almost a, should young, be a textbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, completely. There, there was a collection of his. You know, he used to do these um, uh, essays for premiere back in the nineties, mm, and there was yeah. a collection of those that came out oh in the late nineties or whatever. And I remember there was one that was a takedown of. In fact, I, I reposted it on my Facebook page. It, it was a takedown of um, Saving Private Ryan, and oh my God, it was just he, he obliterated yeah. it. But there wasn't anything that he said that that I could argue with about about it. everything was right on point. He was a hundred percent correct. Whether you like the movie or not, you can't argue with anything he said. He was just so uh, in, incisive, insightful. I mean, and uh, yeah. I, you know, I I reread that the other day. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, he he wasn't quite taken with it, but he still gave Spielberg his props. Sure. For yeah. the visual the visual storyteller that he is, which yeah. is so apparent in those battle sequences. It's not real. It's not really a movie that's really uh, dependent on its screenplay. Unfortunately, it's really a more of a more of a visual movie, and mm-hmm. and its weaknesses are in its screenplay, really. Yeah, yeah, and he he, he brings up a lot of good points. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I remember after reading his piece, after I, I read it, after I'd seen the movie, and just reassessing what I felt about the movie. <laughs> uh, did, he cha- did he change your mind or? It's, I did. I did. It's uh, still a very good movie, but uh but it's not a movie that I return to uh regularly. Uh I, I don't think yeah. I don't think I need to return to it. But uh but it is standing on a directorial level. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just the, the he, logic he must of not have, he, he must not have wanted to work with Spielberg. Because <laughs> yeah. why would why would you shoot yourself in the foot like like that? <laughs> I, I, and I know. and he really didn't. Throughout his career, yeah. he didn't that work with him at all, really. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's why he wrote it. Maybe there was something uh, else going on there. Could be. You know, another uh, another uh, movie that I love, uh, maybe against uh, my better judgment, is uh, is Magic, which was based yeah. on his novel. Sure. 
you know. And yep. I, I still find that movie extremely, uh, extremely tense and and uh, and affecting, you know. There, there's a lot to like about that. I, I agree. And, you know, okay. I'm not a big score in that. The score in that movie is amazing. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Jerry Goldsmith's isn't, score. Isn't it, isn't it a strange uh, a compilation of talents involved in that movie? Yeah. yeah. Because you would not expect that to be a Richard Attenborough movie. Yeah. <laughs> Even Anthony Hopkins was like, why are you casting me in this? Uh, why are you directing this? <laughs> yeah, you know. you'll, be, you'll, you'll be in bed with a naked Anne Margaret. He said, oh, all right, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, yeah. it's a selling point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what do we think about the rumors that have always persisted that he had a hand in writing the screenplay for Goodwill Hunting? You know, there's always been those pesky rumors, and I don't know if there's any. I thought there were some rumors too that uh, Kevin Smith had written that screenplay or or what? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I think those are like uh, akin to the kind of uh, jealous rumors that came out that. That mm-hmm. Marissa Tomei wasn't really the winner of the uh, Oscar she won, uh, yeah. you know, for for uh, my cousin Vinny. You know, yeah. I think people were jealous because she was so young and had won it, and and I think it's the same case with those two guys winning it. Uh, although they might they might have had some help from both of those guys. Who knows? Yeah. Well, you know, true. William Gold, William Goldwyn also did classes, right? I mean, he yeah. traveled around mm-hmm. with workshops and things. Uh, so, you know, there's no telling how many people were inspired by his instruction and, and maybe on a one-on-one, one-on-one basis or just see me after the class or whatever, right. he might have given direction to certain people throughout history. But, uh, you know, my friend years ago went to one of those workshops that was hosted by Sid Field. Mm-hmm. There's another – here's how you write a screenplay author. And right. said it was the, mo- the most terrible experience. Like the guy was so down on being there, and uh, uh, my friend was like, "My friend was like, well, you chose this line of work." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think much of that book, by the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think much of it. Yeah. Well, I think it's that type of thing has, to some degree, discouraged a lot of great talent. I think from ever. I wonder how many people just reading that book, they said, I can't do this. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to do it, and they just didn't even try. And I yeah. think about how many great films that we may have been denied because people just read it and said, you know, this is the, this, I can't, it's over my head. I, if this is the way it's done, I'm not even going to bother. And mm-hmm. so I, I think, because, you know, some of the greatest movies of the last 40, 50 years, you couldn't, it would, you'd be hard pressed to, to, to fit them into his. Into what, what that block, says. yeah. Yeah, into that block. Yeah. Formula, yeah. Yeah. It's all about for it's all about formula. It's uh, like they 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 try to break down screenwriting, uh, like you break down like chemistry, like you mix like, this much into this. Yeah, yeah. Just like yeah. save the cat, you know, is is kind of modeled after it. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I always uh, – a great screenwriting book, by the way. Uh, um, I can't remember quite the name of it, but it's by J. Michael Straczynski, and it mm-hmm. came out in the early 80s, you know, the guy who created uh, Babylon 5. Uh, before he created Babylon 5, he did a book about how to do screenplays, but he didn't just do movies. He did television, 
and uh, radio and all sorts of commercials and everything. And he broke down exactly how to format them, too, which was very valuable to me. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's a really good book. Uh, I'm sure there's it's out of print. I don't, I, don't, I don't know who wrote it, but, and maybe we're talking about the same book, but there's a book called The Screenwriter's Bible. Mm. That, that that's that's a very practical approach too in terms of formatting and all of that. You know, mm-hmm. it, it it is strange the phenomenon of how to screenwriting books and how most of them are written by screenwriters that disgruntled screenwriters who can't sell a screen. <laughs> yeah, or or a little failed or whatever. You know, when I met Michael J. Michael Straczynski, <laughs> I, I I embarrassed myself. I met him uh, at TNT when we had picked up uh, the fifth season of Babylon 5, and uh, he gave me a crew jacket for all the work that I had done on it and uh, uh, with the fans and everything who had written into uh, TNT through uh, the Internet. And um, he, I, I, I think I backhandedly insulted him because I was like, I was so glad when I saw you did, you've done Babylon 5 because I was a big fan of your book, and I was glad that you'd finally done something that was successful. <laughs> he had kind of an insulted look on his face. And he, of course, didn't mean it like that, but uh, but he, he sort of took it like that, but it wasn't yeah. a big deal, you know. Did he, did uh, he take his jacket back? <laughs> no, no, I kept the jacket. <laughs> I kept the jacket. I mean, so so if somebody like William Goldman writes a how-to screenwriting book, then you you pay attention. Just like mm-hmm. if yeah. somebody like Eric, uh, like an Eric Roth or Paul Schrader wrote a book, mm-hmm. I definitely pay attention to it. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Paul Schrader book, yes for sure. Has he ever written a screenwriting book? I don't believe so. He should. I, mean, I don't think so. He's he's obviously. Uh, r- written about uh, his process of writing a specific, you know, like Taxi Driver. That's out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. The process of writing that. But, yeah. Well. <clears throat> All right, here's a question. Speaking of Paul Schrader, uh, Andy Spirit Awards nominated, I think, uh, First Reformed for four, four or five uh, nominations the other day. Yeah. Uh, what realistic shot do you think First Reformed has at the Oscars. I think it has a realistic shot at screenplay. Yeah, and, and, original and, and screenplay. And Ethan Hawke is definitely deserving. But yes. Maybe he ekes in, but probably maybe. sixth place. <laughs> you know? Maybe, maybe. But uh, I, I still think he, he deserves to be in there. Uh, but uh, yeah. I think, I think it'll definitely get a screenplay. Nomination, if it and I will predict it'll probably win. He'll probably win as kind of he has never honorary. He has, yeah. never, has he been nominated? Never been nominated. Never been nominated. Not once. Amazing. Incredible. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Well, he did <laughs> the nomination for this one. I mean, they need to give him an honorary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, come mm-hmm. on. Immediately. Immediately. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I agree completely. Before he gets more nasal and you can't understand what he's saying, they need to give him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I do love First Reformed. That's still in my top ten of the year so far. Uh, oh, it's in the top five for me. Yes. Yeah, it's right up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what have What have you guys seen? I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got ten movies. Okay. Jesus. All right. 
So have we seen wildlife? Wildlife. Uh, no, I did Paul not. Dano. I the Paul Dano uh, movie. No, I, I have a screener for it. I just uh, award screener they sent, but I haven't gotten to it yet. <clears throat> yeah, that is that is excellent. Uh, uh, really wonderfully acted by everybody. Uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal kind of disappears in it uh, in in the middle because he he's playing a husband that has to go away for a job and leaving the mother and the child behind. And, and, um, uh, so, you know, uh, I just wanted to mention that and, and, but it's really Carrie Mulligan's movie, uh, and Ed Oxenbold who plays the son. It's really their movie. Uh, uh, very good. Uh, uh, you know, uh, really, really great, Period detail, the costumes, the sets, uh, uh, the look of it, and everything. And uh, it, the film was written by Dano and uh, Zoe Kazan as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just I, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, I don't uh, know if it'll be a big player uh, this year, but it sh- it should be uh, for some of the technical categories and. And uh, and and the screenplay, um, and Carrie Mulligan, yeah, for sure, great, uh, really, really affecting movie. I found it very moving. Um, oh, be- beautiful uh, uh, photography by uh, Diego Prieta, I think. Yeah, Diego yeah. Prieto. Yeah. Yeah, Prieto. Yeah. It's uh, really, really no, no, gorgeous. No. Is, it, is it the? Is it which one is? Hang on. It's, is is it Diego or is it Rodrigo Prieto? Uh, no, it's Diego. I think. Uh, um, okay, then it's not Prieto because Rodrigo Prieto is Scorsese's DP now. Okay. God, these Italians are taking over the cinematography. <laughs> Italians and Spanish and everything. Diego Garcia. Okay. Is, yeah. Is the okay. name of this guy. So, uh, and a really good score, uh, David Lang, who also, uh, that leads me to the next movie I'm going to mention. D- uh, David Lang, I think, also did the score to The Old Man and the Gun, which I watched uh, mm-hmm. through the uh, through the screeners that are being sent in, and uh, that was a good little movie. It was kind of a tribute to seventies. Uh, crime movies, but uh, of course it's like about a gentleman bandit played by uh, Robert Redford, who does his jobs with uh, 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 his cohorts uh, Danny Glover and uh, Tom Waits, who's also always great to see again. And uh, uh, Glover didn't get a lot to do in it, I didn't think, but uh, Tom Waits gets some really great scenes in it. And uh, it's very much a movie that's kind of, uh, like I said, a tribute to 70s movies. Uh, And so, in a way, it kind of reminded me of something like Falling Down, you know, where half the movie is concerned with what the cop is doing. The cop, uh, played by um, Casey Affleck, uh, who is tracking this gentleman bandit, and... uh, uh, and then the other half is what the <clears throat> Redford character is doing. And um, 
I was less interested in the Redford character and the romance that uh, comes up between him and Sissy Spacek. I was glad to see both of them, but uh, I, I didn't find the romance very interesting. I always wanted to get back to Casey Affleck and uh, Tika Sumter, who plays his, uh, his wife in it. Uh, I, I just like those scenes a lot better, and I... I still think Casey Affleck is somebody who just makes anything immediately interesting, you know, uh, yeah. anything he's doing immediately interesting. You know, I, I kind of agree with uh, our buddy uh, T- Tony Macklin about Robert Redford. There uh-huh. was a uh, – because he was enamored with Redford when he started his career because the roles that he chose were emblematic of something. I mean uh, – uh, and they – they really were when you think of downhill racer and yes. candidate and all that, all that. Ilk. Yeah. And yeah. Pauline kale came up with a great line about uh, Warren Beatty, I think years ago. <clears throat> and I think she equated it with somebody like Burt Reynolds as well, where instead of actors, they become baby, baby kissing politicians. Mm. And, um, and I feel the same way about Robert Redford, like at a certain point, in terms of his performances, not the movies he directs, but his performances, he he had to have. All of a sudden, he has to have the angelic glow around him. He's, yes, he's playing towards the shit that he used to play against. Yes, I agree. Um, That's the same thing that goes on here. Point. Yeah, <laughs> there was a scene. There was a shot here. You know, of course, he's in his eighties now. So, and he, out of all the, uh, eight, you know, act. Aging seventies actors, he's aged the the least best, and um, uh, because I think he spends spends a lot of his time out there in the snow and everything, and and all that uh, all that sun and everything uh, has really weathered his skin. And, <laughs> wow. and uh, when, you, when you look worse than Tom Waits, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You look that more guy. haggard than Tom Waits. That guy has a. That guy has a has a diet of uh, cigarettes and whiskey, so yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, Tom Waits looks better than he did. Uh, but um, yeah, I I just uh, I, there's one shot in the movie uh, that they must have worked very hard on. But he comes in and uh, uh, comes into the frame and gives. Um, the camera's behind uh, Sissy Spacek, and she opens the door to her place, and he gives her a kiss, and it's just the most beautiful uh, photography on him. They must have worked, had to work so hard, but he absolutely looked like he did in The Natural with the hat on and everything, and yeah, uh, yeah wow, I was like, whoa, they did a good job on that one, but uh, uh you know, I really liked the movie a lot. David Lowry did a terrific job on it, and I thought it was very, very entertaining and uh, had a beautiful score. I mean, just the, the best score that I've heard so far this year. Just And a really wonderful sound design, which uh, kept everything even and didn't uh, blast you away with the music. And uh, you could hear everything really well and... Uh, oh God! It was just—it was really, really, uh, very well done, and uh, um, yeah, I would highly recommend that film. And this, uh, this one feels different for David Lowry too, because this one yes. feels a lot more congenial. 
than his previous mm-hmm. Kingdom Body Saints in a ghost story. Yes, it was I mean, a lot more it feels, warm. It feels like it's a it's myth. You know, mm-hmm. it's playing up the myth kind of aspect of it. Yeah, well, he he didn't get very uh, yeah compared to those other two movies who that that can be rather obscure. This didn't go into that obscurity territory. Uh, it's Daniel Hart that did the score, not uh, not the other guy, uh, Daniel. Lyons. Well, I'm not surprised because Ghost Ghost Story was my favorite score that year, and Daniel Hart did that. Okay, uh, so he's he's somebody to look look out for because that's that's great. Yeah, that that score was just so wonderful and gentle. I, I went out and got a copy of it immediately. I thought, wow, you know, a lot of scores you can't just put on and listen to for me. Uh, but that one I could, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know, without, without thinking of the movie while I'm listening to it, you know, um, yeah. Uh, I know you feel differently about scores. You listen to scores all the time, don't you? Sometimes. Well, less, less, less so now because they're, they generally suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's the last, uh, recent score that you bought? I mean, like in the past year or two, movies from the I past buy, year or two. I, 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 I buy reissues or new releases of older stuff. Right. But, but, but I, I, did, I, did buy, I bought Jackie and I bought a ghost story. Okay. Those, that's, yeah. Jackie makes a lot of sense. Uh, she's, mm-hmm. she's one of the best uh, scorers out there now, and uh, for sure. Anything... Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I picked up the new John Williams uh, Dracula, which uh, is complete for the first time. It's mm-hmm. never been issued until like two weeks ago they put it out. That's one of his best. More. Yeah, they thought the sessions were completely lost because, you know, the soundtrack album is re-recorded. It's not the original score that's in the movie. And uh, Oh, wow. They, yeah, so there was no, you know, you couldn't get the original. So it uh, Apparently, John Williams, it was one that was on his list that he wanted issued, and they were having just a really tough time finding the master tapes, and apparently they located the tapes, and the first tape they got to said it was mono, and they said, well, this is not going to work. But then they got to looking deeper, and there were three boxes labeled mono and three stereo, so there was uh, two copies of the original sessions, one in stereo, one in mono, and so they uh, they, they were able to do something with it, and they they got it. So. Mm-hmm. The record you listen to it all? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. It's another good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's fantastic. I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, so. it's one of the best things about that movie. Mm-hmm. And, the Revenant uh, is another good recent score. I mean, recent meaning not, not from 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah, right, like <laughs> but, I'm talking you know, about. That, thing, that thing's only like nine minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> so. Wow. Did they really issue a score for it? A sound, I'm exaggerating. A I'm, ex- okay. I'm exaggerating. Okay. Yeah. All right. But they did. They did come out with soundtrack. And then Johan Johansson was great, but he's dead now. Yeah. So, right. mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stephen Stephen Price, Gravity. Uh, yeah, but he. I have a feeling he's not going to return to movies very much. Well, uh, Suicide Squad. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, what else have I seen? Okay, well, I saw Let the Sun- Sunshine In, by uh, the new film by Claire Denis, with mm-hmm. Juliette Binoche, who's 
really always worth watching. That's one of the best uh, uh, female performances of the year. It's really just a, a lady in her 40s, uh, you know, kind of playing the field uh, sexually and uh, and then uh, reaping the benefits and the downsides of it. She's an artist, and um, it's a, it might be a, uh, you know, like a lot of Claire Denis movies, they, they, it might be a little uh, too arty for some people, but um, uh I really enjoyed it uh more than many of her other movies uh but uh uh really because I really love Juliette Binoche uh I think like I could watch her in just about anything and yeah. uh um it ends I'm not giving anything away <clears throat> but uh but it ends and all of a sudden up on the screen pops uh Gerard Depardieu I'm like, what? He's in this. What? what Where did this come from? And it turns out he he's her uh, he's her uh, therapist or or a tarot card reader or something for her. And uh, and uh, the whole final sequence over which the uh, credits roll, the entire credits roll over this scene. Uh, the entire uh the entire last scene is just a session between those two actors or you know characters or whatever mm-hmm. and uh it's 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 stunning it's worth the the whole movie just to see that but uh really i think uh, when ev- when everything ends Gerard Depardieu should pop out <laughs> hello <laughs> and he should like urinate on the carpet or something something well, that's distinctly Gerard Depardieu Eat a cake. <laughs> um, now, one of my least favorite movies that uh, is getting a lot of acclaim uh, that uh, I just I did not connect with at all was uh, is the wife, um, the uh, Glenn Close vehicle where she plays the wife of a. Uh, Pulitzer or a uh, a Nobel Prize winner for literature, who's played by Jonathan Price, and throughout the movie, uh, certain revelations come up that uh, she might have had more of a hand in writing the pieces than just typing or whatever. And um, I just I thought every single bit of it was phony and. didn't seem real. What about her performance? She's okay in it. I think she's a little over the top. Uh, I think she'll probably still get nominated if she doesn't win as sort of a as sort of a special Oscar or whatever. But um, I I really didn't connect with the movie at all. I found I found it. I couldn't buy any of it. Um, I just watched a little bit of it, and it. So I I didn't see enough of it to give it a. a a true kind of a criticism, but it did feel a little bit like a Sony Pictures classic release from 1999. Yes, <laughs> yes, it feels dated. There's something about the I've never heard of the director before, but uh, he's, uh, I think he was a Swedish director. But uh, I I wonder if there might have been a language barrier or something in the uh, 
in the direction or something that might have might have hindered the performances a little bit. But there's a little, just a little bit too much of the two people just sitting around eating and stuff, and uh, not enough, not enough uh, real, uh, you know, and, and getting accolades and stuff. I, I just, I didn't connect with it at all. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't hate it. I, I mean, I, I didn't love it, but I liked it. Let's put it that way. I'll clarify. It's kind of B plus <laughs> for me. You know. Liked it better as it went on. It was, the first of it was kind of like what you're saying. I was having a little trouble connecting, but as I, I hung it, in there, and it, got it was better. better when the drama came into it yes. and the uh, actual uh, they actually got to the thing. But I didn't really right. think that they got to the nut of the issue really very much, and uh, I was still left with questions when it was over. Like, uh, boy, they, they didn't really go into anything. Like. Uh, they didn't really have them discuss, you know, their the the whole uh, their whole caper or whatever, you know, like uh it it seemed like uh it seemed like even at the end of it like uh Price had still not accepted that it, you know, she basically wrote his works or something. Like mm. I don't know, he just seemed like he was in another world or something. Which maybe that's the, maybe because of his illness, maybe uh, that you know the character's illness, maybe maybe that was the point or something. I don't know, but I just didn't didn't love it. Uh, in fact, I found it rather tedious uh, until until it got to its final hour. Um, now this movie, I've I've got I've got. Oh, I, I should bring up the other movie that I absolutely despised. Uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? I hated, hated, hated it. Uh, I thought I was going to, I thought it was okay at first, but uh, I just felt like that was a character that, that, of course, back in the 90s, this character would have been played by Kathy Bates. Yeah. And you, I could have believed it a little bit more with Kathy Bates in the role, because uh, it's kind of a, you know, a tough, uh, hard-bitten character that Kathy Bates plays well in just about every one of her movies, including my favorite of her performances in, in Primary Colors. Um, but uh, I, uh, I could not believe. Uh, Melissa McCarthy in it. I just couldn't, couldn't buy it. And also, I thought it was incredible. You know, I usually don't uh, <clears throat> criticize a movie for this, but I found it to be incredibly depressing and cruel to its main character. Uh, I didn't feel that they gave her really any humanity other other than the fact that she liked cats, um, which of course there's a cat in it, of course. Full, full warning. I don't feel like I'm giving away a major plot point here. The cat eventually dies. You know, you can't have you can't have a freaking animal in a movie without it dying. Uh, just almost every movie, you know. At least in the Star Is Born, I, uh, you know, the dog lives. <laughs> you know, but uh, uh, I was like, I know they're going to make this cat die on us. You know, and of course it's Richard. Richard Grant, uh, who's getting a lot of acclaim for his supporting performance, but I didn't care for it 
at all. I thought it was over the top, and <clears throat> I just didn't respond to that movie at all. What did you guys think of it? I felt about the same way I did about The Wife. I gave it like a B plus. I There were some things I liked about it. I I can't say that I was over the moon about it. Uh, I had hoped that I would like it a lot better than I did, but but uh, yeah, it is a downer. It's a downer. I agree. It's and, uh, it is yeah. it is not a movie to go see after Christmas dinner or whatever. You know, it's yeah. like whoa, you and and one, you'll be one plodding of out of there. Yeah, I was going to say one other complaint. Now that you bring it up, I, I wonder what you think about this. You know, there's a kind of a subplot in the middle of the movie where one of the the people she's trying to the the, the girl the the lady that runs the bookstore or whatever that she's trying to right. Tell these, yeah, they, they open up this they, subplot where they it's kind of a romantic subplot and it I, goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. They just totally dropped and, it. Yeah, and, that was frustrating. And they they also threw in a scene where uh, first of all they were never over. Of course, they're overt about Richard Grant being a homosexual, but yeah. they never are really very clear about her sexual orientation. You just have to sort of piece it together, like oh, I guess she, she I guess she's a lesbian or whatever. But uh, yeah. uh, the uh, the scene with uh, Anna De Smith, where she comes yeah. in one scene and mm-hmm. says, "Well, I just got tired of talking you off the ledge and everything," you know. Uh, well, uh, yeah, but they weren't they aren't very clear at all on that. Were they afraid to show a fat person having a romance or something? Or whatever. I I just don't know. Uh, I just I felt that the movie was a punching bag on that character, and I really felt like you know. I you, was frustrated about the subplot that that never got resolved. I'm like, why include something when you're not going to follow up on it? What's yeah, the point? Just cut the whole thing out. You know? Yeah, where the where I, and I thought it was charming. I thought their their little uh, interaction was charming. Yeah, it was a very good scene. Yeah, but they uh, they have a few scenes together, a couple uh, with the bookstore owner and her. In case you don't know, the movie is about a, a real life author that that uh, started uh, forging uh, letters from famous other famous authors uh, because her books wouldn't sell because she was stuck in the past. She was stuck in the past of doing bios of, of uh, you know. People from the twenties, like uh, Fanny Bryce and and uh, and uh, well, this this person's from the fifties, but uh, Dorothy Kilgallen and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so her books weren't selling anymore, so she had to find another way to make a living, uh, and she chose she chose a, a slightly criminal way, or a, a, a very criminal way, but uh, you know she wasn't hurting anybody really. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I just, uh, what a downer that movie is. I just, there was nothing, uh, there was nothing redemptive in it or, or anything. I, I don't require redemption in, in all of my movies and I'm okay with downer movies, but, uh, I, they have to, they have to work, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, the machine did not work on that one for me. So, uh, and surprising, considered it's written by Nicole Holofcener, who we generally like. Uh, we love, we love. She's she. Now that's somebody who has never did a, done a bad movie whatsoever. She's yeah. uh, everything she ever has ever done. This is the first time 
that I've ever seen anything with her name connected to it. <clears throat> I have a feeling that this was maybe a blacklist script that maybe she 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 polished up uh, because the uh, other screenwriter I, is, was a name that I did not recognize. Yeah, Jeff but, uh, Whitty, I think yeah. was his name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I I just uh, I hated that movie. Hated, hated, hated it. <laughs> and I, it was really, really painful to get through. I thought, and uh, yeah. but I have a feeling a lot of a lot of people won't feel the same way, and they'll love it. But to me, it feels like one of those. You know how, like at the end of the year, there's okay, you get a uh, you know a landslide of Oscar contenders, and mm-hmm. some of them look look great before you see them. They look like Oscar movies, and uh, sometimes they fool the voters, and they actually do get Oscar nominations. But you you go, oh boy, they fell for it. Uh, you know, this is one of those movies. That, like uh, it's going to fool people into thinking it's an Oscar movie when it's really just an average. You know, blah. Yeah. You know, I didn't care for it at all. Now, uh, I did. I saw. Uh, this is one of the masterpieces of the year. I saw um, Alfonso Cuarón's Roma, uh, which Netflix is releasing in theaters, and I saw it at a, at a screening at a theater. And uh, wow, Why I was they releasing this in theaters because I mean this is important since our discussion last week. Mm-hmm. They're releasing in thirty countries. I mean, they're releasing it all over the place. Yeah, that's, I was that's a smart convers- of them. Yeah, I was having a conversation with uh, Mara Reinstein, who uh, is the film critic for Us Weekly. We had a conversation the other night, and uh, she recommended uh, she was talking about people should see it in a theater because. Uh, it's the kind yes. of thing if you see it at home, you, you can easily pick up your phone and start, you know, hitting the Twitter. Yeah, you, you and, will, and you will, you will drift away. You will drift away. You right. have to, you have to have, you have, not because it's a complex story, but you have to have your, you have to get into the world that mm-hmm. Caron uh, makes for us. And let's be clear, he he really did. Do a lot of this movie on his own. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, of course he had a crew, but he's the editor and the cinematographer on it, uh, as well as one uh, one of the writers, I think. And so he's he's all over it. And uh, you know, it's a widescreen black and white movie, which is one of my favorite things because I feel like that's very surrealistic in a lot of ways because I believe we see the world in widescreen. With our two eyes, but to have it in black and white is uh, uh, it provides sort of a disconnect, a really uh, attractive disconnect that I like, and I've always liked widescreen dis- uh, widescreen black and white movies from the '60s and the '50s, uh, and this is another really good one. Uh, but also, a brilliant part of it is the sound, uh, which is by. Uh, uh, Oh God, I'm trying to think of that uh, sound guy's name now, Stephen, uh, or I uh, uh, can't think of his name now. But uh, a, a really great sound guy that's worked with the Coens did uh, did uh, No Country for Old Men and has been nominated for Oscars a lot. And it, a beautiful, beautiful soundscape with the movie. No score to the movie, all uh, classical pieces and. Um, 
and uh, you know, rock pieces from the uh, late 60s, early 70s. It's set in the late 60s, and it it tells the story is really simple. It's uh, it's the lives of two maids who are living with a well-to-do uh, Mexican family. Uh, I think the the father is a doctor or something, and uh, so he's out a lot, and the the marriage is is kind of on its last legs, and uh, kids are running around a lot in, in it, and uh, <clears throat> I really found it's really concerned with the lives of the maids, and particularly the the youngest one who uh, who goes through some trauma in it, and uh, <clears throat> some of the trauma that she goes through might be disturbing for some people because uh you know it involves a, a pregnancy and so forth and um but um uh there's a really uh, this is another movie with a really really uh, uh another corona movie with a really graphic uh birth scene in it and uh <clears throat> very very affecting and uh that uh that girl uh, uh uh whose name I don't have in front of me uh is fantastic in it and uh gosh it is it is an experience you got to go see it at the theater i totally agree because it is such a visual experience and such a sound experience it really puts you right there and i don't think you will get it at home i think you will drift away but it's it's definitely one of the great movies of the year, and uh, I don't know if it's gonna go up for best picture or best foreign film because uh, the uh, the Indie Spirits nominated it for foreign film, but nothing else. And uh, I don't think a lot of people will connect to it in some, in a lot of ways. I don't think they'll they'll have a the patience for it. But I thought it was wonderful, really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, we have a screening for it the Monday <coughs> after next uh, in a theater, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh. You know what's really funny? They go out to a movie. Uh, the family goes out to a movie, and it turns out to be marooned, which gives you an idea oh, yeah. of when the movie is taking place, because that's 69, yeah, that's the year a... year after uh, 2001. And it, is that it won... Gene Hackman space movie? Yes, yeah, the Gene Hackman space movie. Uh, the Gregory Peck is in the. Gregory Peck is the is the flight controller on the ground, and yeah. and it's Gene Hackman and James, uh, is it James Franciscus? I believe and, so. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I can't remember the other guy, Arthur Hill or somebody like that, as the uh, as the uh, astronauts. Anyway, it was funny because. <clears throat> They go to the movie, but uh, you know, to see it. But the movie just—they're uh, out on the streets and everything. And then you cut to a black and white version of uh, of uh, Marooned, filling up our whole screen. It's just a couple of scenes of it, like a couple of you know, thirty seconds of it or a minute of it. And I was like, "What? We're watching Marooned in black and white?" And it doesn't show them sitting there watching it. And it just gets to the to the actual film and and everything. I was like, "What? Oh, I guess they're at the movies." And then, yeah, so uh, I thought that was funny because, of course, gravity, you know. 
uh it was like a, a little bit of a commentary on the on his uh his directorial success with gravity in some ways shows you how far we've come uh technologically but uh i i i really loved roma it was just it must be seen on the big screen for sure uh another film that i loved absolutely adored and i was surprised because i thought i might find it annoying is jonah hill's directorial debut mid 90s about a uh young kid uh uh about 12 or 13 uh just just starting to step outside his house and the world and experiencing the world his older brother is played by lucas hedges who seems to be in everything now and uh uh he's bullied a lot by his uh older brother and uh he goes out this young kid who's very good in it uh, again I don't have the name in front of me but um he decides to go out and uh become part of a crew of skateboarders and this is this is in LA in, in the mid 90s and um he uh he very easily makes his way through without having to change a lot of, about his personality keeping his personality not imitating other people a whole lot and uh not putting on airs or anything he he's very much still himself but he's he's trying to be a success in this world and it, and it seems to be working for him. Uh, and uh, it's really beautiful, really beautiful movie, which I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting a movie to be, uh, this movie to be as moving and as as uh, as as gorgeous as it was. Uh, but it really was. It wasn't weighted down with a lot of, you know, Nirvana music or something like that, you know, to, to nail down the period or anything. Uh, and... Uh, but uh it very real period detail and uh a very good screenplay and the cast of kids in it including some of the older teenagers that sort of uh <clears throat> guide him through the world is uh is magnificent i think they were really really good so uh so mid 90s i would say is definitely one of the best of the year uh can't recommend it highly enough. Have you guys seen it? No, I have not. <clears throat> Check it out. I'm sure you'll get a. I'm sure there'll be a screener copy. Well, probably. You know, it's it's not going to be. I think the only indie spirit nomination it got was for editing, which it does deserve. Uh, but uh, it's a really, really wonderful movie. Uh, has a lot of heart to it. But uh, I guess I'll. I should conclude by saying I think I've seen my favorite movie of the year, my very favorite movie of the year so far. Of course, we've got a little bit more to go. But On Chesil Beach, which is by uh, Dominic Cook and written by Ian McEwen, um, based on his novel. Uh, It came out earlier this year, and... By now, it's now on Amazon Prime, so it should be easy for people to check out. It's called On Chesil Beach, and it's about it has uh, Saoirse Ronan 
and Billy Howell as a newly married couple who are uh this is takes place in the late fifties and um they're a newly married couple who are uh sharing their uh wedding night, you know, after after seeing each other for a few months and meeting each other's parents and so forth and and uh she has uh, uh the mother is played by uh, uh I guess his mother is played by uh uh Anna it's the same woman that played uh John Lennon's uh aunt in that Nowhere Boy movie. Um Anna Marie Duff, I think is her name. And uh she she is uh she is brain damaged from an accident that happened earlier in her life and uh so <laughs> there's a very unusual uh scene with uh Billy uh Howell uh bringing Saoirse Ronan into his house to meet his mother for the first time and and she's an artist so she's doing some of her art with her shirt off and she's got everything's hanging out and and she's like hello she's not even noticing and and uh Saoirse Ronan helps her up with her shirt to put, put it back on I found that very moving but uh this film is so well written. What a screenplay. And what great period detail and oh just a devastating movie about uh about intimacy and uh uh you know the level of uh revelation that uh self-revelation that is needed to uh make into this kind of intimacy work. The, the the kind of intimacy that they were going for at least and um one of the uh one of the more uncomfortable sex scenes ever in cinema history i would say uh there's not a lot of nudity in it uh but uh it was uh it was devastating i, I it's the it, so far besides uh uh you know uh the Mr. Rogers documentary this is the only movie that has made me cry all year, and it really, really gut punched me. Really beautiful movie. So, on Sheffield Beach, uh, I think is should be a contender for a lot of things, but I don't think it'll be remembered. But it really should be, especially considering it's on Amazon Prime. It'd be very easy for a lot of uh, voters to uh, to check it out without having to worry about. Well, I'll it. definitely check it out too. You know, the, yeah, the, the, I th- the most awkward sex scene of the year for me is in the Mr. Rogers documentary. I'll let you mention it. But I'll check <laughs> out uh, I'll check that on Chisel Beach. Oh, yeah. It's so great. Uh, really, really something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Adam, you saw Buster Scruggs. I did. Yeah, I I liked it. I'll have to admit. Um, you know, I, some of, one of my colleagues had seen it when they ran it in a theater for us. Uh, and it was conflicting with another screening I couldn't go. But he was kind of lukewarm on it. But I found it to be pretty well done. Um, You know, it's an anthology movie, so, of course, some of the stories are going to work better than others, as you might imagine. It's it's no different from any other anthology movie. How how many stories are in it? There there are six six stories. Uh, And it runs just a shade over two hours, about 210, something like that. Six but, stories you know, is a lot for, the, yeah, for one of those movies. But 
it's it's never boring. There's always something interesting going on throughout the entire movie. Is um, it funny? Uh, the well, that's what I was going to get to. The first segment, the first story, is in my opinion, it ranks up there with the best stuff the Coens has ever done. Oh, that's Tim Blake Nelson. Okay. It it is phenomenal. That's all I'm going to say. I I was laughing hysterically. It's just full of their their quirky, odd camera angles and their surprising left turns, you know, mm-hmm. plot and all that. And it's it's funny. It's it's almost like a the best thing I can think of to that that uh, the best analogy I can come up with is that it reminded me of a Warner Brothers cartoon from the 1950s, uh, a Yosemite like a live action Yosemite Sam Bugs Bunny kind of. <laughs> Uh-huh. Where people are getting their faces blown off in a cartoonish way. Uh-huh. Uh just that kind of thing. But it is it is fantastic. The uh, the opener with Tim mm-hmm. Blake Nelson is is all I'm going to say and and it's if for nothing else the movie is worth the, that it makes it worth the price of admission so to speak because it is it is just superb. But then, you know, some of the other stories are pretty good, too. You're talking about Tom Waits. He's in this one as well. Mm-hmm. And he, The story with Tom Waits is um, he pretty much is is the whole show, except for a brief appearance from another character. It's pretty much a one-man show, the one that he's in. Oh, that's, that's it, neat. Yeah, it's interesting to see him do the – to hold, hold, the, uh, hold the entire thing up by himself. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's a gold prospector, and he keeps digging holes, hoping that he's going to find gold. And uh, won't say exactly what happens because it has a, all these have a twist. You know, there's always a big surprise coming. Okay. And uh, but the, the the one with Liam Neeson is really good too, because it's about he's he's one of these guys who goes from town to town with a, a, a man who has no arms and no legs. He kind of looks <laughs> like John, Johnny Eck from Freaks. Remember that guy? Yes, of course, Johnny <laughs> and, uh, Yeah, and he he takes him from town to town, making money off of him, and until the, the people get tired of that act and stop coming, stop coming to show up, and so then he has to figure out what he's going to do next, and it takes a dark, a dark turn. Mm-hmm. All I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's one with James Franco where he consistently uh, avoids being killed until mm-hmm. he. His luck runs out, so to speak. Okay. It's like a, a bank robber uh, who just keep, keeps on barely barely missing it. Uh, so and then the last segment it has it's an appearance by the Grim Reaper, basically, uh, and it has features Tyne Daly and uh, and Saul Rubinick. And, wow. Uh, so yeah, there's some there's some real good talent in this movie. This is Saul Rubinick's second. Uh, uh, Western, because he was in yeah. Unforgiven. That's true. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. I forgot. I've been that. dying for that uh, Tyne Daly Saul Rubinick. Uh, <laughs> I know that's the last story. Yeah, they, uh, yeah. But I was like, it would only be worthwhile in a Coen Brothers movie. Don't blow it. Yeah. On any other director. <laughs> so, so was the last thing? Because usually in these things, the first and the last bit is are always the best. Uh, things was uh, that the case? I thought, I thought the last one was actually the weakest. Not to say that it's bad. The one, the one with Tyne Daly and Saul uh, Rubinick and uh, Brendan Gleeson is in that one too. Okay. I, I thought that was probably the weakest, but in a movie that's generally strong, uh, saying that it's the weakest is not necessarily 
I'm, I'm not trying to knock it by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm telling you, this movie, I, I wish I'd seen it at the theatrical screening that we had. Uh, because now you can't see it in our area in, in in a theater. This movie has some of the most incredible cinematography that you're likely to see this year. I mean, the, just the way that the the frontier is is filmed and the just ah, oh, it's just incredible. The the color, the use of color, and the, mm-hmm. the just uh, the, oh, it, it's just gorgeous to behold. And luckily, I have a projector and a pull-down screen where I could kind of, even though my screen's not nearly as big as what it would have been in the theater, I, I still was able to. You still get it. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but this is this is a movie again, like you were saying about Roma, that is, would really benefit from seeing on a big screen. But but all in all, it it is very good. Oh, and there is one really bittersweet story. I forgot about this one with Zoe Kazan. You were just mit- mentioning her. Oh, wow. Uh, where she's traveling by wagon train to meet her fiancé, and then she falls in love with one of the people on the wagon train, so she's mm-hmm. between the guy she's met and the one she's going to meet. And mm-hmm. So and that one has it has a bit of a tragic turn, that's all I'll say. But uh, again, th- these things all have surprise endings and, and such and so forth, but it's it's really... Uh, effectively done, and I would definitely give it a, a thumbs up and try to urge people to see it. If you're a Coen Brothers fan, especially, uh, there's a lot to like about it. So Carter Burwell score? Uh, I don't believe it was Carter Burwell. I can't remember. It may have been. I can't remember. But but the score is good. It it, it is a good score. Uh, and uh, they they did the editing, of course, with their pseudonym that they always use. Oh uh, so, yeah, Roderick James. <laughs> Roderick James. <laughs> so the movie they cut. That's the a good trivia there. question. What's the? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, who is Roderick James? Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, I. You know, it can't Here's be missed. Trivia. Here's a trivia question for you: What 1986 movie co-starred Jason Alexander and? Butterfly McQueen. Hmm. 1986 movie. Oh, that is a good one. Oh, uh, is it? It's it's not. Uh, it's not Jacob's Ladder, is it? No. No, that was 1990. That was that was. Uh, I was just thinking Jason Alexander. I don't know. What is it? And for those out there that don't know, Butterfly McQueen is Gone with the Wind. She played Prissy in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I don't yeah. know about Birth and No Babies. This, this is her last movie. Oh, is it? It's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, Battery's not included, is it? No, that's eighty-seven. No. Uh, okay. It that's is good. You're good with the years. Uh, <laughs> so what Did is I it? Tell you? Yeah, tell us. Tell us. It is the mosquito. The mosquito coast. Oh wow. wow! Yeah, I remember now. Oh yeah, that's a good trivia question. Yeah, that's a very good one. Yeah. Was that her last movie? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so wow. uh, okay, so did, was it Deacons Photography as well? Deacons is on this? No, no, it's not Deacons. It's no? somebody I was unfamiliar with. No, he did. He did not shoot this one. It's some. It's somebody that I'm not really familiar with. So they ventured outside of their usual uh, usual collaborators behind the camera. They did. Uh, they did, yeah. But but you couldn't tell. I mean, it's, it's so ex- exquisitely put together that you really 
just you know, like I said, from a technical perspective, it, it there are a lot of wow moments in this movie. Let's put it that way. <laughs> there are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to watch it. Good. Yeah, you do. You really do. You can't can't miss a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. It, it yeah. is Carter Burwell who did the music, but it's Bruno uh, Delbanel who did the uh, cinematography. Oh, wow. oh, he's it's, great. It's, it's the guy who who did uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. that guy. Okay. I, he was on our he was on our cinematography series. Mm-hmm. Oh man, now I feel terrible. I did, the name just didn't <laughs> ring a bell. <laughs> okay. But anyway, but yeah, yeah. It's and I don't want people to think it's a perfect Coen Brothers movie because it's not. But it's a very good Coen Brothers movie. If that. Um, if yeah. Okay. So, so I want to urge people to see it. Yeah, I did watch. Uh, I I did watch that Kaminsky method, the new series on Netflix with Michael Douglas uh-huh. and Alan Arkin. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's worth seeing, I guess. It's a bit. It's pretty aimless. It's a Chuck Lorre show with three and a half men fame. Oh. Uh, it's not wow. sitcomy though. Okay. It's not <laughs> at all. At all sitcomy. Actually, you're. Most of it, you sit and watch it, and you think, "Is this supposed to be funny?" Or uh, because it's, it's not doesn't seem to be going after comedy as its primary mode of existence. But mm-hmm. um, however, the fifth episode is hysterical. It's if you see no other episode, see the fifth. Uh, uh-huh. I think it's like eight eight episodes long. It's great to see Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin together. Alan Arkin, in particular, is very at uh, very good at, at times really heartbreaking his main storyline mm-hmm. um uh, michael douglas is a uh, has been actor who's now a famous uh, acting coach and alan arkin is his agent's friend and it's basically about how they navigate old age together mm-hmm. uh, but it's got a fantastic uh cast i mean outside of the two leads you got elliot gould and and margaret and just a ton of people show up. Jay Leno's in it. <laughs> really? Wow. Playing himself? Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, he's playing Pat Morita's partner. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Do you remember that movie they did together? I, can't I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I do. It was on cable. Or... Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I well, I did see the front runner. I, I did see that the new Jason Reitman uh-huh. um, film about the Gary Hart campaign, the failed Gary Hart campaign, and and it's I, again. I, I'm not going to say this is one of Jason Reitman's best films. Uh, he seems to have lost his touch a little bit. I I think with I the think last couple of th- things that he's done, but um, th- this. Once it gets going, if you hang with it, it gets better as it goes along. It becomes more riveting and interesting. Uh, I thought the first thirty minutes of it were a bit of a, a slog. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, he's run, he's amping up his campaign and yada yada yada. And you've seen it so many times, and I really had a hard time connecting with it. But but I hung hung in there, and by the time that you know, he of course, for those who don't remember or aren't old enough to remember or whatever, he had an affair with. Uh, with one of his campaign staffers, and um, it's amazing. And it derailed the campaign. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing to think that there was a time when something. I mean, considering yes. what's going on now, <laughs> yeah. that, that that could derail a campaign. Right. And um, so, yeah, and if you and if you do some research on Gary Hart, you'll see what a real loss that was, mm-hmm. because he had all these grand plans. That he, I mean, I think things would have been, uh, we it may have been a totally different world we'd be living in now had he made it and been mm-hmm. elected because he really had some uh, his his ducks lined up in a row. He had a real uh, strategy should he be elected that he was going to. You know, he just had a lot of things he was going to take care of, and uh, if you do the research and see that, you, your your jaw will drop and see that this is really kind of it, we're, really we're a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, and new stuff has come to light. New stuff has come to light Mm -hmm. since that movie was made about the Gary Hart thing. Mm -hmm. About uh, um, uh, uh, who was it? It It's a political operative. His deathbed confession that he set up. The circumstance which uh, kind of allowed Gary Hart to have that affair. Uh, Well, mostly to be photographed on that boat. Right. I just, I just, I know why they made it because it's, in a certain way, it's the beginning of tabloidish politics. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I understand it. I just uh, something tells me it would have benefited from a director with more urgency than a Jason Reitman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Because uh, because there is there is a, a somewhat of a lack of of a sense of urgency, but the, the story carries it along to a certain degree. Uh, like I said, especially when it gets into the actual scandal and what they were dealing with, and um, and he's got is, a great is cast. Is Jackman miscast? No, I thought he did fine. I, I thought he he looked like him. He 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 nailed the the uh, the voice pretty well. I thought. Mm. Um, I I thought he did just fine. Mm. And there's some some good supporting work, Vera Farmiga with uh, doing playing his wife, and then you have uh, J. K. Simmons is the 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 guy who was his campaign uh, manager. Manager, yeah. yeah. So he's good. Uh, you know, there's there's again, it's uh, it's not something I could totally dismiss, but I was hoping it'd be a little bit better. I'm not gonna lie about it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, some somewhat of a mixed bag, but. But uh, for anybody who doesn't know that story, it might be worth seeking out for that reason yeah. alone. So, anyway. Which there are probably a lot of people like that. <laughs> yeah. mm, true. So those are really the, the newer releases that I have seen uh, in the last yeah, couple Sundance, of days at least. Uh, Sundance has embarked on DiCaprio as an executive producer on this four-hour documentary series on Jonestown because it's the 40th anniversary of Jonestown. Mm-hmm. And I've 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 seen a lot of Jonestown stuff. Yeah. Uh, but this one's worth seeing. Part 1 premiered uh, Saturday night, which is last night when we're taping this, and the second final part airs tonight. And um it showed me stuff that I never seen before. It show uh they have he used to beat uh members that were out of line. Yeah. Yeah, actually that's true. They actually have recordings of those beatings. I'd never heard those yeah. before. I, 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 uh, it's part of the uh, documentary that was done a few years ago that I think might have been nominated for an Oscar. It was a uh, PBS. I think it eventually made its way to PBS, but it was released in theaters. Yes. First, yes. I believe. Yeah. yeah, that was very good. 
Yeah, yeah, it's I, I read... it's it's, very, it's a very effective uh, miniseries so far. Okay, Ooh, I can't wait to. Who are the filmmakers behind it? Do you know? I don't know. I don't, I don't know that they're filmmakers of note that that we would recognize. Okay. That's name. Right? What's what's the uh, network? Is it HBO? It's Sundance. Okay, Sundance. All right. God, I tried to watch True Grit on Ovation Network the other night. And it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was like, it, and this is the Coen Brothers remake. Every six minutes, there was a commercial break. And I, I, are you kidding me? Yes. <laughs> you can't watch a movie on commercial networks now. It's impossible. You, you might as well just not watch it because uh, there's no, no rhythm, no rhythm at all. They the kind of fool you. They fool you. They give you a thirty minutes at the beginning kind of fool you into thinking, oh, I'm watching a full movie or whatever, you know, with no interruptions. And then then they really kill you with the commercials towards the end. Uh, as closer you get to the end, the uh, longer the commercial breaks are. And, uh, yeah, and the shorter the movie segments are. Yeah, it's, mm. it's impossible to watch, you know. <laughs> you know. All right, let's... Uh... The big loss last week, probably the man who informs what the movie climate is today more than anybody else, uh, was Stan Lee. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, I want to bring up this because Bill Maher posted a blog about Stan Lee yesterday, and um, it's garnered vociferous... uh, Debate, not really mm-hmm. debate, because nobody's debating it. They're just crucifying Bill Maher for what he said, and essentially what he's saying is, "Look, I used to love comic books when I was a child, and blah blah blah, and I'm not." Uh, and Stan, Stanley, there's no, <coughs> no doubt that he's a talented man, but he sees this worshiping of comic books part of the infant, infantilization. Infantilization of yes. society. And I agree. Part of what's of what's wrong with society. I agree. And so I I completely understood what he was saying, uh, but people can't listen to that because they're they're children, and they yes. and they have to crucify crucify him for his position. They want their dessert. <laughs> they want the dessert for dinner. They want nothing but dessert for dinner, and uh, and. Uh, they're going to cry until they get it, and that's that's and, the whole it, deal. It really did. It really did. Used to be that comic books were for kids, and this was what he was saying. And at a certain point, society, uh, especially men, were told, "No, it's okay. You don't you don't have to grow up. Like you can take your childish things with you." Yes. Uh, now, now I don't think that comic books is the source of a problem. And uh, I, I don't necessarily think it's a problem if, if an adult likes comic books. But it's a symptom. It, it is it is a symptom. Yeah. Um, that people that people don't want to be adults anymore. Yeah, they <laughs> don't want to. Kind of understand. It's not easy to be an, but it's never been easy to be an adult. It, like you know. It's a drag. Yeah, it's a drag, and uh, and but. Uh, 
And I'm not probably the right person to be saying this because I'm still living at home with my mom and everything. But uh, people do have to grow up and stuff. And, you know, uh, now that I'm getting older and stuff, I am uh, I feel like I'm really uh, – I'm sort of going through a major, like, phase of, like, oh, I realize now that I'm not a kid anymore. Uh, and it's it's shocking. And I wonder if a lot of people are going through this. Uh, the main argument against what Bill Maher says is that you know you're completely ignoring that uh, comic books are about overcoming uh, adversity and uh, uh, people with kind of s- special needs that want to feel more powerful and they're empowered in their own lives. So a source of inspiration. Some of these stories, like uh, you know, like our new our new mythologies. Mm-hmm. That have value. I I don't find, uh, I, you know, I I am a comic book fan, but I like uh, I like sort of underground comics because I felt like they were about people. So I like people like uh, Robert Crumb and P- Peter Bag and and uh, so many great comic artists and weirdo comics and uh, and raw all that stuff. I really love almost all of that stuff, and oh, Ghost World is a good one, uh, you know, or or Eight Ball, uh, you know, Daniel Close. I love all of that stuff, so I am a comic book fan, but I am not a fan of superhero comics because I really always felt like they were just sort of the same story over and over again, and you know, you know, the main character is going to win. Uh, because they have to have a next week's comic, you know. Yep. And uh, there's no suspense in them, and that's the way I feel about the movies, too. And it doesn't matter how much they up the ante or up the destruction or whatever. uh, It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, like, if if at the end of the movie it looks like the main characters are dead or whatever. I know they will come back because it's comic book, and they have to make it keep the gravy train running. Yeah. So uh, I, there's no suspense in them for me. I I don't see why people can't uh, grasp that, you know. Well, well, I have to and now that we're talking about this, I have to vouch for an incredible book that I'm reading right now. About to finish it. I don't know if you guys know about it or have heard about it. It's called The Big Picture: The Fight for the Future of Movies by Ben Fritz. Mm. And what an incredible book this is because it is uh, it, it's basically a takedown of where where the movies have been and where they're headed now, and it gets into all the nuts and bolts as to why this Marvel uh, superhero thing has just taken uh, America by storm. Or the Hollywood, world. I guess yeah. you would say the world. It gets into all of it. It, it, it and, and they use – he uses a lot of the information that was leaked in the Sony hack. Uh, he's He's gone through every one of those hacked emails one by one and uh, taken some of the more – explosive content and incorporated it into this book and it really really gives you some real insight and context as as to what's going on and why we're seeing this phenomena right now couldn't it's an incredible book i just what, I can't what's the title again the big picture the fight for the future of movies by ben fritz r f r i t z and it is just it is it is a terrific book it came out earlier this spring and um i 
just missed it back then. I'm just now get well. I had it. I I picked it up. I'm just now getting around to it. But whoa, what a great book! <laughs> I'm still working on the 2001 book. Uh, you know, I'm still uh, I'm on the last chapters of it right now. It yeah. takes me a it's taken me a long time to get through it. Uh, surprisingly, it just takes me a long time to get through a book. Re- really, yeah. I don't really uh I'm a reader but I don't really enjoy reading as much as I like movies. Uh I feel like movies. I'm vacillating between three books right now. Mm. There's one <laughs> one on the Warren Commission, there's one on River Phoenix, and then another one on Karen Silkwood. I'm and also going through jump, three books. Yeah. Those jump all from one to the other. Yeah. Depends whether or not I'm on the toilet. I mean, essentially. Yeah. 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 It's true. And uh, it's true. That's where I get most of my reading done. I guess that's why it's taking me so long to uh, get through it, but uh, through the 2001, because you think I would. uh, uh, If you need to finish a book, Dean, just take some diuretics. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's good. That's a good piece of advice.